you'll turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. We're going to read part of chapter 3 and, and the, the famous story of the woman at the well of chapter 4. But as we look at the Gospel of John, we're asking this big question, who is Jesus? And, and the answer we're going to hear this morning is he is our bridegroom. And so let's read our text and pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. So it's John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30, and then um, chapter 4, 1 through 19. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent before him, been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And in chapter 4, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And this is the word of our God. He has spoken to us today in love. His word is true and trustworthy. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would surprise our skeptical hearts with this deep, satisfying love of Christ, our bridegroom. And for that to happen, as we just read, we need your spirit to assuage our thirst, that we might have living waters flowing in us and through us because you are with us. And so we ask that you would do as you promised this morning, and we ask in the name of Jesus who loves us and gave himself up for us. Amen. So last week we, we looked at John 3.16 and the surrounding context. Just the wonder of God's unparalleled love for the world. And now chapter 4 explains what kind of love that is. What kind of love every Christian is given when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's the love of Jesus, the bridegroom. And so this morning, as we look at the Gospel of John, he's going to show us this surprising and scandalous love uh, that is deeply satisfying. It's the kind of love that, um, well, as Augustine said, our our hearts are restless until we find our rest in these. Um, We could go with St. Bernard of Clairvaux that we heard um, this weekend, uh, that that we, we are finite people with an infinite need of love, of an infinite love that you can only find from an infinite God, Jesus Christ. And so, just want to remind you again that uh, as we meditate on this idea that, that the God of the Bible loves his creation, it is a unique and very distinct Christian view. All right. One of the, um, the gifts we got at Presbytery was this thing called Mission Insight. It's just looking at demographics and surveys and just trying to say, what are your neighbors like statistically? And statistically, according to the surveys around us, what people are looking for most is a God who loves them. That's their default view. They've already embraced the ideas here in John. They just don't know him personally. All right. And so let's, let's set the stage here as we transition from John 3, right? John 3.16, God loves the world. And then in, after this narrative, as he explains God's love, uh, we have a transition story about John the Baptist where, where John, explained, John the Baptist tells us why he is thrilled that Jesus has more followers, right? That, that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm simply the friend of the bridegroom who just rejoices to hear his voice as a good friend. Right? I mean, it's basically John says, I am not going to be the best man at the wedding who's trying to steal the bride from the groom, which has happened if you Google it. <laughs> right? No, what, what John uses, he uses this wedding metaphor to describe his joy at seeing Jesus get the attention he deserves because of who he is. And so if you connect the dots, God's love for the world and Jesus being the bridegroom and then you add John chapter 4, where it says, here is Jesus coming to a well, and it's Jacob's well, and 
everyone in the ancient world knows that, that wells are where all the single ladies hang out, and that if you're looking for a bride, go to a well. And so as we, we get ready to meditate on John 4, you're supposed to have weddings on the brain. Not in a literal marriage, right? This is not Jesus physically looking for a physical bride on earth from this one individual woman. He, this is a, don't, forget, don't miss the metaphor, right? This is a metaphorical love of Jesus the bridegroom for all of his people. And when you, when you have weddings on the brain here, you're, we're going to see this surprising, scandalous, and satisfying love. So let's look at the surprising love of Jesus. Um, so where did you meet your spouse? Where do people look when they want to get married? Right? I met Bethany at, at our church. Um, people, people look uh, universities, right? So at least at Houghton, it was, you got to get that ring by spring. Um, <laughs> Now it's normal to, to look on the internet, right? Internet dating is no longer weird. Like when I was growing up or when I was in my 20s, it was that weird transition where it was kind of okay and kind of still weird. Now this is where the internet is the well these days. <laughs> right? In the ancient world, if you wanted to meet a lady friend, uh, whether either you or one of your representatives, uh, you would go to a well. So Robert Alter is this well-known Bible scholar, and that's what he says, is that conversations at a well, this is, they're, they're familiar engagement scenes. So when, when you read the Bible, or he's talking about the Bible specifically, when you read the Bible and you see a conversation at the well, you should expect someone about to get hitched. It's in the same way, right? You watch a Western movie, someone pushes through the double doors of a saloon, you know someone's about to get shot because it's just a type scene. <laughs> and that's what's happening here in, in John, that, um, that, that the way the, the Bible works is you would meet a single lady at the well, they would go home and, and make all the arrangements for the betrothal, they would, ha- they would solidify the deal with the meal, and you can, you can see that in Moses, you see that in Jacob, right, this is Jacob's well, where he falls in love with Rachel, who he says, you know, working seven years for her was nothing, it, was, it felt like a few days because of the depths of his love for her. Isaac meets his wife at a well, and, you, and I think you can argue that Adam was given his bride at a well. In Eden, in the place, in a spring where waters of life flow up from the ground. So, so that's the surprise here by Mentioning Jacob's well after talking about Jesus being the bridegroom, I think you're supposed to have engagement on the brain. And, and point one is just it's the, the surprise of the gospel is the, the language used to describe God's love for his people. It's in using covenant wedding language. Right? I mean, the, the setup is get ready to see the promises of Hosea 2 be fulfilled. Right? If, if the Lord of Hosea really has come, right? the Lord, Yahweh, that's John 1, he's become human, and he's come down to betroth himself forever to his people, what's fascinating and what's, what's surprising and even scandalous is he starts with a Samaritan woman. But the promise is, the world shall know the Lord intimately. 
And so here the invitation of the gospel this morning, come receive and experience a perfect faithful love, the love of Jesus, the bridegroom, that you will not find in any human being. Come and you'll have a spring of water welling up to eternal life. All right, so if you, you, you take that metaphor, what does God want from you? That metaphor says he wants you, right? Not just your obedience, not just your faithfulness. That would be the effect of his love. Right? He's not just saying come and he's not just saying come clean up your act. It's saying he wants to know you and you to know him in the way a bridegroom seeks to know his bride. Right? The gospel is a love story of which every other love story is a shadow or an echo. And so, if, if the idea of God being loving like this doesn't surprise you, then you've already been influenced by the Bible, <laughs> right? Only the Bible portrays a God who would love like that. Because no other religion offers that kind of close, covenantal, non-abusive <laughs> relationship between creator and creation. So, that's the first point. It's love is surprising because of the kind of love he's, that's being offered Second, look at the scandal here in John chapter 4, the scandalous love of Jesus. Right there, Jesus is in Samaria. Right? It's, he's been journeying for hours in this hot Middle Eastern heat. It's about it's the sixth hour. That means it's about noon. And Jesus is physically exhausted. So he's resting while his disciples go and look for, look for lunch. And it's at this hottest part of the day that the Samaritan woman comes and has this conversation with Jesus, right? And so it's important to remind you that Samaritans are ethnic and religious enemies of the Jews. They don't play well together. It's hard for us to understand that kind of hostility to where you look at a whole people group and say, Y'all are disgusting. Because as one rabbi said, Samaritan women are ritually unclean since birth, menstruants since the cradle. They wouldn't, in general, right? I mean, there's exceptions. In general, they wouldn't share a meal together because the Jews, the faithful Jews, didn't want to make themselves ritually unclean and unable to worship. They didn't want to be defiled by their neighbor's disgustingness. And part of that reason, they have a shared history, um, right? The Samaritans are in the northern part of Israel. They had strong disagreements on where to worship. We'll talk more about that next week, that the Jews worshiped Yahweh in Jerusalem. Uh, The Samaritans had set up an alternate worship spot on a different mountain. And so there's religious hostility. I mean, the closest we get to this kind of distrust and I think to really understand what, what this would look like to outside eyes would be imagine the race relationships in the Jim Crow South. Right? We're all Americans, but because of history, a shared history together, there's, there's distrust. And in the Jim Crow South, it would have been scandalous to see a conversation between a black man and a white woman, or vice versa, especially in a place they hinted at where there'd be flirting, and romantic intentions. 
In fact, in our text and in the ancient world, just for a man to start a conversation with any woman at a well could have been taken as flirting. So generally, men would not talk to women, especially in this, this location. So this whole thing is a social scandal, a taboo. And it's even more more scandalous once you get to hear her past, because not only is she a Samaritan, someone Jesus shouldn't talk to, as they said, they have no dealings together. Jesus tells her to go get her husband, and, um, you know, like a good upstater, she wants to keep her life private. Jesus is dragging it out of her. I have no husband. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You've had five men, and the one you're living with right now is not your husband. Jesus has pulled out of her, really highlighted the fact that her romantic life is a mess. She's had a whole series of bright beginnings that have ended with shattered hopes. So not only is she a sufferer, right? Suffering broken relationships, as painful as that is. Um, she's, she's lonely. And commentators note she comes at noon by herself. Ordinarily, you wouldn't come at the hottest part of the day to get water. You would come first thing in the morning, but that's when all the other women would do it. So if she's coming alone, she's either distrusted or disliked by the other women in her community or too ashamed to come. But she's also a a moral failure under the law of God. We don't really know if she's um, like a a serial fornicator, to use the old language, right? If, if she's someone who's just had several boyfriends and, and is willfully choosing not to keep God's commandment about sexuality, of only being in marriage. It's possible she's been married five times, uh, where she's the woman from Deuteronomy 24, and the husbands keep saying, you displease me, we're divorced, and she's just been passed down from guy to guy. But regardless of of that, here is a woman who's been ostracized by her community. The idea of a wedding, right? that's been heartache and disappointment for her. And Jesus says, give me a drink. He starts a conversation. And so this, this is the scandal of this kind of love. It's, it's for the world, and it includes Samaritans. That's the message to the Jews of the day. It's for those you don't like, for those you don't trust. And the, the scandal is that his love is also for moral failures, for those whose love life has been disappointing, disorienting, even damaging. All right. Now this idea of Jesus, the bridegroom, right? This love extends to people who have made a mess of their romantic life, who have things they're deeply ashamed of, they would, that like this woman you would rather not talk about in public. What I love about Jesus is you look at his character. Right? He's, he's honest, he's blunt, he has more courage than I would. Right? But he's not shaming her. Right? He's, he's not trying to humiliate her by pointing out her past. It seems like he's revealing her need. He's, he's saying, 
don't you see that you are thirsting for a love that's better than anything you've received thus far? And if you receive my love, you'll never thirst again. Right. Does anyone remember the, the way that, especially in the 90s, youth groups would use to try and motivate teens to live up to the Christian standard for sexuality? Um, you know, one of the, the, one, the illustrations would, that I would heard, and I'm sure I experienced at some point, is like, here's this beautiful rose, right? And one, you know, a room full of kids, you say, all right, pass this rose around and have everyone touch it. And of course, the, by the end, after a bunch of teenagers have touched this rose, right, the petals, the petals have either fallen off or this rose is wilted. And then the question would come, like, do you want that rose now? It's a humiliating question. Right. It was meant to say, stay chaste till marriage because it's better for you. You know, they came with a promise that marriage would be amazing. But the effect was, right, it just made them feel ashamed. Especially if someone was in the room who was that wilted rose, so to speak. Right. It would make them feel like, well, because I'm like that, Jesus wouldn't be interested in me. And that's, that's not the message of John 4. Jesus starts the conversation with moral failures. Right. It's one thing to warn against and say this will not be good for you. God has a plan for you to flourish and in relationships, in romance. Say this is God's design, it's God's command. Therefore, don't do this. It's another thing to say, well, you did this, you get what you deserve. That's not Jesus' attitude. He combines honesty with an invitation. Right. You've had five men, this man is not your husband. But if you knew the gift of God and who was saying it to you, you would have asked, and he will give you, he will give you living water. In other words, come and drink. Come and be satisfied by my love. Right. So that's the scandal. John, on the one hand, wants, I, I believe, wants us and the Jewish audience to feel the weight of God's love, not just for people like us, but for the world, for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Right? And, it, and to see that his love includes people like the Samaritan woman at the well. Right? And then, of course, he wants us to see the scandal that, that his love is for those with a shameful past who have tried to satisfy their thirst again and again and again, and they keep going back to the well, wondering why life is so disappointing. How do you apply this? I mean, I, one, yeah, may our church be this kind of scandalous refuge for, for people who are just drowning in shame for their, their, their past so that we can offer in Jesus' name this living water, this satisfying love to moral failures, no matter what race they are, no matter what ethnicity they are, what wealth or gender or how good or bad, right? This gift, according to John, is for the world. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will give living water. Come and experience the love of the bridegroom. Now, third point, right? This love is surprising, it's scandalous, and this is where Jesus gets to this. It's, it's satisfying, because at the heart of 
This is where it gets personal, right? At the heart of this conversation is an accusation. You haven't chosen to be satisfied by God, by his love, by his presence. And the evidence, of course, is your long history of lovers. You know, God's love isn't satisfying to you, and the evidence would be, look at all the places you've been looking for satisfaction outside of Christ. Look at the ways you're trying to squeeze an infinite love from finite things. So let me ask if you really believe that God's love is satisfying. How's your prayer life? Right? Do you pray believing that God wants to be in this covenant relationship of marriage? Right? I mean, it would, you tend to draw near to people when you know that they're for you. And if it's this kind of intense love, that's an invitation to pray. Right? And the second question would be, what do you find disappointing lately? Right? Not, not in the ways that you go, oh, this is not how I expected my life to go uh, because of suffering. But you know, feeling like you've been putting all your hopes in a particular well, and it keeps coming up empty. You're still thirsty. Right? The Bible calls this idea of forsaking God, not finding his love satisfying. It's like drinking from broken cisterns. Uh, it's, it's, it's an image from Jeremiah 2.13, and it's likely Jesus has that in the back of his mind, that my people have committed two evils. One, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to create for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a leaky container. And so you imagine... Every day, this, this describes human existence, right? You're, you're working t- for something. You're aiming at someone. You're pouring water into this thing. And every morning you wake up and the container's dry. Putting your love in, into a leaky sieve, so to speak. Right? And so rather than looking to God, the fountain of living waters, we demand that someone or something be satisfying. Make life worth living for me. Right. And then they end up singing Mick Jagger, <laughs> right? Can't get no satisfaction. And, you know, we laugh, but it's an honest confession, right? He's saying, you know, I'm, I'm just not happy, and I'm trying. You know, there's people on the radio telling me what to do. That's useless. You know, I'm ride, riding around the world, and, you know, some girl says, come back next week, and can't you tell I'm on a losing streak? He can't find satisfaction. Now, the promise that Jesus offers is if you taste of my love, this this relationship, this living water, if you drink deeply, you'll be satisfied by his grace, by his presence, by his love. Whoever drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty again, and the water I give him or her will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you know what, living water, I know it's an abstract uh, metaphor, but do you know what he's, I think he's referring to? It's an allusion to Song of Songs. You know, that, that, that book we don't read because it's really uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, the Song of Songs is in the Bible because it symbolizes God's love for his people, God's 
God, I mean, it's, it's a story about a marriage, but it's, it, it was read every year at Passover to, to say, look at the love of Yahweh for Israel as he comes to rescue them. And in Song of Songs 4.15, the man, the husband, praises the woman by saying, you are a garden fountain, a well of living water flowing from streams of Lebanon. It's, it's a poetic image, but the songs describing the one who receives the love of the bridegroom is a well of living water flowing from God's presence from Lebanon. Right? And in chapter 4, the woman, right, that would be us, the church, the bride, she's the one who's captured the heart of her lover with just one glance of her eyes. And if, if you receive this gift of living water, right, this is the kind of love that you're given in the gospel. And what's so surprising is that's, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, that can be yours. You who've had a immoral past, who's chased satisfaction and been disappointed, come and drink, Right? And if you take the context of Song of Songs seriously, it's his offer to her is to receive my love, right? Come and be the, the bride who is beautiful, holy and blameless in his eyes. All to, there is no flaw in you is one of the, the quotes from Songs. It's, it's to have Jesus look at his people with this holy desire. Because the God of the cosmos wants to marry us, to dwell with us forever with a fiery, jealous love that's so intense that death, death cannot contain it. Right? I know this is uncomfortable, but that's okay. It's, it's in the Bible. <laughs> it, to be clear, this isn't Jesus is my boyfriend theology. Right? Uh, it's, it's this rich biblical storyline that starts in Genesis 1 and 2, works its way out in God and Israel, and culminates with Christ in the church, a global church, ending in Revelation, where it says, see the holy bride coming out of Jerusalem. And it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Right? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the purpose is for you to understand what God says when he says, I want a relationship with you. And because Jesus is so good at using the appropriate metaphor to, to draw out understanding from a person's heart, he uses wedding-type imagery to speak to this woman who's been wounded by men. Come and receive the passionate, forgiving, gracious, faithful love of Yahweh the Lord, who's come in the flesh, the Lord of Song of Songs. So, how do you get that? The last question here, and we'll bring us to a close. Right when in every other wedding story, especially in the scriptures, for there to be a betrothal, there's a cost. And so the question would be, what's the cost for us to receive living water? We're paid by the bridegroom. And then the question would be, how do we experience this this living water for ourselves? How do we find that satisfying love? And the answer, I think, comes in John chapter 7, 
verse 37, as it explains what living water is. Right? When Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John comments this. Now Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so what's the cost to be betrothed uh, to receive this bride, the love of the bridegroom? It's Jesus' glorification. And in John, that's his death on a cross for his unfaithful bride. It's, it's the cross and resurrection all tagged up, teamed together. Right? To stop and look. The way you get living water is to stop and look at Jesus' side, pierced. Right? Forming the bride of Christ as his blood flows from his side. It's showing you the depths of his love. Right? To quote Catherine of Siena, the 14th century mystic, she says, when you see Jesus hanging on the cross, you, you see him being consumed with ineffable love. And she says, I say consumed because he does not love you for his own profit, because of what profit can you be to him? Right? What do you have to offer an infinite God as a finite being? He simply loves you because he loves you. And she goes on to say, who, who could not be affected? Who could not be inflamed by this great love? What heart can, can help breaking at such tenderness? She says, it seems, O abyss of charity, of love, as if you're crazy with love of your creature, as if you could not live without him, and yet you are a God who has no actual need of us. Right? That's the intensity of the gospel. Adam, whose bride was formed from his side, he failed as a bridegroom. When she failed, right, she was the first moral failure. Actually, Adam was doing nothing, but then she took the fruit. How did he respond? He just let her, her nakedness be exposed. It's her fault, not mine. And in the gospel, we're given a, Jesus is given an unfaithful bride, and what does he do? He forms the church from his side, bleeding, offering living water to cover our shame. Now John 7 shows us that the living water offered to this woman was the Holy Spirit that becomes available to everyone who believes uh, in the cross and resurrection. So what's the cost of his betrothal? It's, it's his death and resurrection, his it's where you see the depths of his commitment, that his jealousy is as fierce as the grave. But the moment you believe, every Christian's given the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus promised, you have rivers of living water flowing from you. Right? And the idea is you have, right, the whole, God, the Spirit kind of unzips you, climbs inside, as Paul Tripp puts it, and, and God comes to dwell with you, and so now the God who is the fountain of all life, all living water, makes you a place, a person from whom his presence flows from. You're going to smell like Lebanon, which you may not have ever aimed at. 
right? Because in Song of Songs, the idea of streams of living water flowing from Lebanon, Lebanon is where the cedar for the temple came from. And so it became code for the temple, for God's presence that smells fragrant. And so if you combine these metaphors, the moment you become a Christian, you have God's love and presence poured into your heart that then overflows from you towards the world, which we'll see more clearly next week. But it's a satisfying love. Right. So let's, let's apply this. What's this calling you to do? Well, one, it's calling you to reorient your desires, our desires. I'm putting myself in here, right? That if we're to take the scriptures seriously, is there anything in the world that compares to a love like this? And why would you look elsewhere? Why would you forge for yourself empty containers to seek satisfaction from when, when Jesus says, come and drink without price? Come and, and you will be a person from whom rivers of living water flow from your heart. I think second would be uh, pray like you believe this. Pray with, pray like you are loved, even as you ask God to help you love him more. Right? Because the idea is if you're going to pray and believe in the, the love of the bridegroom, you're asking for God to heal your disappointments with his satisfaction. To, to pray your disappointments, to pray your romantic regrets, to pray through your, your shameful past and let Jesus' love cover and hide that and, and hear again, right? This is, this is what we're going to hear at the marriage supper of the Lamb when, it'll, when faith will become sight. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no fault, fault or flaw in you. And the way Paul talks about it in, Romans, or in Ephesians 5, right? You're Christ died for the church so that he might present her to himself in great splendor without fault or blemish. So pray in light of that. Let Jesus bring your shameful past into the noonday light of his forgiveness. And last of all, ask for more of the Spirit. Because you can't do anything apart from him. Right? The the idea is if, if you become a river, uh, you know, if streams of living water are flowing from your heart, you're, you're asking for the Spirit uh, to be at work in your heart, to pour out God's love in your heart, to make what you know to be true, Christ died for sinners, and then it affects your emotions, your affections, your desires. And for your desires to be changed, you need the Spirit to do battle with the desires of the flesh. Right? In other words, I don't agree with everything Catherine of Siena said, but she was right when she just said, how can you not look at that bottomless abyss of love for you? Look at Christ crucified. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for this great story that gives us all hope. And so we, we do. We pray for the Spirit to heal our hurts, to cover our shame, and to pour out your love into our hearts so that we might abound in hope and abound in love for, for a dying world that's craving satisfaction in a dry and weary land. So not only would you satisfy us, but would you equip us to be witnesses of the love of Jesus, our bridegroom, so that we might be able to sing with great joy that, that like we already said this morning, when we reach Emmanuel's land, um, we're not going to be staring at our garments we're going to be looking 
at the face of the one who loved us, our King of grace. To fix our eyes on Jesus this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.